0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: I'm Caleb Zachron, Assistant Editor of the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Daniel F. Rundy, Senior Vice President of the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Daniel's new book, The American Imperative, Reclaiming Global Leadership Through Soft Power, argues that America must reshape its global strategy in a fast-changing international landscape. In this interview, we will discuss the current state of affairs. The effectiveness of globalization, the future of international institutions, and the alternatives to the current path we are on. Daniel, thank you for joining me today on the New Books Network.
0: Thanks for having me,
1: Caleb. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I'm excited to talk about this book. You cover so many different topics, uh, and as always, ones that are topics that are just very important uh, and that you know need to be discussed on on a daily basis. So, before jumping into the book, I was just wondering if you can tell us a little bit about yourself and your background.
0: I grew up in uh, New York. Uh, I went to um, I went to Dartmouth. I um, learned Spanish in college, and I studied overseas in college, and that had a big positive experience. I also um, worked um, on Wall Street, and um, so I had some time in the private sector. I lived overseas, and then I went to the Kennedy School for grad school and uh i met my wife in grad school and she's from argentina and she wanted to move back to argentina to help her family and so i said okay well i can move there and so i lived in argentina for about three years as well so i lived in spain for about a year and argentina for three and i had done some research work in grad school for andrew nazios who became the head of usaid and the bush administration and so he brought me in with him to USAID, which is the foreign aid arm of the U.S. government. And I had a uh, sort of a five-year apprenticeship <clears throat> learning about global development and foreign policy. And really, I think glo- foreign aid is a form of applied foreign policy. And then I uh, did four years at the World Bank Group at the International Finance Corporation. And um, I, uh, then I've been here at CSIS for the last 12 I've sat on, a, have chaired a couple of government uh, advisory committees, one for the USAID and one for the US ex Bank, and I sit on a number of outside boards. So um, uh, I brought a lot of perspectives and I brought sort of 20 years of, of experience in Washington to this book.
1: For those who aren't familiar, can you talk a little bit about what CSIS is yeah, and sure. the work? And then also uh, a little bit about USAID too, for those who aren't yeah, familiar. Sure.
0: So I often say CSIS is not CSI Miami. For those of you who don't, you know, don't know, CSIS is the Center for Strategic International Studies. It's one of the most uh, recognized and most prominent foreign policy and national security think tanks in the world. <clears throat> and I'm a senior person there. And um I focus mainly on soft power related issues, I think as a way to describe sort of the things that I I have a gravitational pull towards or an interest in. Uh, We've been around for over 60 years, we're bipartisan. And um, our board chair is uh, Tom Pritzker who is the, and then our our CEO is the former Deputy Secretary of Defense from the Clinton administration. So we have a, uh, you know, it's a very, um, it's been a, a very good, place for me to work for the last 12 years and so we've had a good you know it's been a good it's been good so um and I think we're able to convene across the political spectrum and uh we're very practical and interested in solving problems as opposed to you know doing stuff that's sort of ivory tower stuff and uh so yeah that's what CSIS is
1: so very broadly, and, and we'll drill down into some of the more particular topics, but but why did you choose to write this book in particular?
0: So I've been in Washington for 20 years. Uh, I have been interested in non-military forms of our power. So I'm very appreciative of our military forms of our power. And I think they're very important. But as time has gone on, what I've observed and watched is that China has become a larger and larger force in the world and in somewhat in partnership with a with a rogue uh, Russia who's you know doing a whole ter- bunch of terrible things including their illegal invasion of Ukraine and they're both capable of filling voids that we leave and so they have agency in ways that maybe at the end of the cold war that they didn't necessarily have they have the ability to fill vacancies in terms of, if we leave a void in terms of vaccines, they can fill vaccines. If they, we leave a void in terms of did closing a digital divide, like you know, providing technology so that you can have high-speed internet in a developing country, they can do that too. If somebody needs an airport or a port or a bridge built, China can do that too. <clears throat> they couldn't do that 25 years ago or 20 years ago. So we, they also have the ability now to influence and lead in ways that they didn't 20 years ago in the multilateral system. They have the ability to provide higher education alternative offerings in ways that we may or may not like either. So my point is, is that between China and Russia, they're able to fill vacuums that we, leave. and so it's not 1995 anymore, and it's not even 2005 anymore. And so we have got to wake up and smell the coffee and understand that our, when we talk a lot in Washington about great power competition, I agree with that, but great power competition isn't gonna happen in Moscow and great power competition isn't gonna happen in Beijing it's going to happen in Guatemala City. It's going to happen in Jakarta. It's going to happen in Bamako, Mali. It's going to happen in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania. It's going to happen in Kiribati, which is a Pacific Island state. It's going to happen in Kazakhstan. The point is it's going to largely play out in the developing world. And most of this great power competition is not a military competition. It's a competition on vaccines. It's a competition on infrastructure. It's a competition on technology and standards. It's a competition on trade. It's a competition on val- democratic values. It's competition, a whole bunch of soft stuff. A lot of it that is encompasses global development. Some of it that compasses beyond global development and we It's not about who's got better night vision goggles or who's who's got better long-range missiles, though I'm all in favor of us having better long-range missiles and better night vision goggles. It's about these other things that are perhaps less sexy, perhaps a little sleepier, that don't often kind of make the front page of the newspaper, but are really important. Uh it, And so that's why I wrote the book.
1: You just go. You go into in the book so much of the history of foreign aid and development, and you, you chart this sort of the long run history from the end of the Cold War, uh, the end of the World War II, uh, the Bretton Woods Agreement, uh, the formation of you know the World Bank, IMF, and other organizations. You you talk about Kennedy Peace Corps, uh, USAID, uh, and then the sort of the fallback. You know this this um, apparatus of development and aid, uh, sort of receding a little bit into the background in the 90s. Can you just talk a little bit about that that long-run trajectory of foreign aid and the uh, the problems you see with its recession?
0: Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> so we, if you start with the Marshall Plan at the end of World War II, the Marshall Plan was a function of the American people being shocked by the coup that happened in Czechoslovakia in 1948, that the Soviet Union engineered a coup that led to a Soviet takeover in Czechoslovakia. So we didn't get involved in Europe's reconstruction just out of the goodness of our heart. We did it out of enlightened self-interest and we saw it as directly linked to our own security and the security of our friends. We also, if you looked at the Marshall Plan, it was linked inextricably with security issues and it was by the coin of NATO. So... If you then fast forward 15 years to the early 1960s, there's a very important book. Maybe 10 years to 1958, to the book, the publication of the book, The Ugly American. There hasn't really been a book like The Ugly American written in, since uh, since 1958. And this book caused a revolution in thinking in Washington, and it showed that the U.S. was culturally insensitive didn't have enough people out in developing countries, wasn't speaking to the hopes and aspirations of many people in the developing world, whereas communists in China and the Soviets were. And so John F. Kennedy read this book and he was appalled. He was so shocked. He bought 100 copies as a senator and sent 100 copies to every member of the U.S. Senate. And as a result of the book, when he became president in 1961, did a series of things. He launched the Alliance for Progress, which was a big initiative in the Americas. He launched the Foreign Assistance Act of 1961, which is a reorganization of our foreign aid. He took a deep dive look at USIA, our public diplomacy. He set up the Peace Corps. And he also stood up the Green Berets, which were special forces that were out, supposed to be out in the countryside working with local people. So it had a military component and it had a series of soft components to it so the ugly american there's a before and after the ugly american in terms of our foreign aid and so a lot of our assistance architecture was set up in 1961 and usaid was a big part of it but there were other things as well and that largely held until the end of the cold war and there were some adjustments at the end of the cold war and then um there was, because of the collapse of the Soviet Union and the opening of kind of the, the, the captive nations of the Central and Eastern Europe, there were sort of adjustments made and additional areas of focus made. And some of that was a great success in terms of places like Poland or the Czech Republic or the Baltic states. These were all countries that were largely successful, countries that were able to transition from a, to market democracies, if you will. Others, not so much. Then, if you fast-forward 15 years, you had 9-11 happen. And that was also sort of another moment where there was a rethinking on how do we engage with uh, certain parts of the world, Afghanistan and Iraq. And I think the larger Afghan and Iraq wars created a sense of exhaustion in the country along with the financial crisis of 2008. And I think it was a bit of a crisis of confidence. And countries like China and a little bit Russia took advantage of this. And there was a temptation in the United States to say, we'd like to, you know, take a time out on global leadership. And there was a temptation to sort of step back a little bit. And China has been in the large part been filling a void that we've somewhat implicitly or explicitly left. So I wrote this book because I think that um, we're not going to like a world led by China and Russia. We're not going to want that. But that's a leadership is a choice. And so there's a series of things we need to do in various areas of the world where we need to step up our game. And so I wrote this book because I want to start a conversation about how we can step up our game as a country in the non-military realm.
1: Following up on that point, you say the rules of the game may not be perfect, but one thing is certain, you would not like the rules as China would rewrite them. Can you talk a little bit about uh, what the rules are like now and how they might change in a China led order.
0: The international system was built by the United States and its allies after world war II, there was something called the Bretton woods agreement. Bretton woods institutions that set up the world bank. It set up the international monetary fund, the IMF, and it's something set up something called the GATT, the general agreement on tariffs and trade, which then morphed into something called the world trade organization, the WTO around the same time the victors of world war ii were called by franklin delano roosevelt the united nations so the victors of world war ii were called the united nations and so in partnership with republicans uh like senator vandenberg uh truman and vandenberg got through a series of key treaties both the establishment of the united nations and the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. So a lot of what might be described as, and it sounds kind of, you know, a little bit, you know, theoretical, but it's really important, the architecture of the of the global system that we sort of take for granted, whether the American dollars, sort of the currency, the the rule the global rules of the world, responding to crises, all these things had a bunch of assumptions built into them that were might be described as sort of American assumptions. And so some of those assumptions now are being questioned. What's happening is that if we don't pay our dues in the multilateral system, other people can pay our dues. Like China is wealthy enough, they can pay the dues to keep these things going. It's like the condo fees of global leadership. They've also been able to put forward really competent and really compelling candidates to run important but sometimes obscure institutions. And so what I'm worried about is that they're in the process of putting forward very viable candidates for important institutions. When they win, they do all sorts of funny things. They'll kick Taiwan out of something called the ICAO, which is the, the rule setter for uh, for air traffic controls and, and a- aviation zones. They, they're a very competent woman from Hong Kong, was named the head of the WHO, and she kicked Taiwan out of the WHO. So you see things like that. There was an attempt by mainland China to put forward a very competent candidate to run something called the World Intellectual Property Organization. Well, that would have been a very bad thing for a whole bunch of reasons, because they have a giant vault of all the world's intellectual property. And if you think that they, the, the Chinese Communist Party wasn't get their hands on that intellectual property, but we're, we're all fooling ourselves. So the Trump administration, to their credit, worked really hard, and I helped them do this, to identify an alternate candidate to China who won the election. But what's happened is, is that mainland China is putting for really compelling, really good candidates. They have great diplomats. They're learned, they've learned how to play the international game then, uh, with rules that we set up. And they're competitors. And so we don't you're not gonna want someone from the Chinese Communist Party running the World Bank. We're not gonna want someone from the Chinese Communist Party running the IMF. We're not gonna want someone from the Chinese Communist Party running being Secretary General of the United Nations. If they want to be the the Secretary General of the Global Tiddlywinks Association, that's fine. Or the, the Global Checkers and Chess Association, that's fine. But we don't want them controlling what might be described as the commanding heights of the international system that sets the rules, sets the standards, controls a lot of sensitive information or or controls large amounts of money. Those are things we're not going to want. These are systems we set up, we've paid for, but it requires us to work in partnership with our allies to do a better job of being a more more engaged steward. So what it means is we know we can't quit the United Nations, we can't stop paying our dues. There was a time in the mid 90s where some of my my brother and sister Republicans didn't want to pay the dues on UN agencies. Well, guess what? We can't afford to do that anymore. China is, and so we can't say stuff like, oh, we're gonna quit the United Nations. That's very irresponsible and very dangerous. And if we do, rather what we need to do is work within the system to the best we can. That doesn't mean we ought to give them a permission slip and we ought to, you know, you know, criticize the United Nations and try and fix it. But if, if they are much bigger presence in the multilateral system than even 10 years ago. And we have just got to be very cognizant of that. And it's important to our security and our prosperity to get keep, keep ahead of that.
1: Something that you discuss at length in the beginning of the book is the 2021 military coup in Myanmar uh, and how this experience observing this kind of led you to rethink some of your initial assumptions about global development and uh, it even seems inspired a lot of the ideas behind uh, this book that you then proffered later. So I was wondering if you could just talk about that coup, what you saw, and why it's a sort of important event for thinking about global
0: development today. So Myanmar is a really interesting country, and I encourage people to learn more about Myanmar. It's a really geographically interesting place, and uh, it's had a very uh, complicated history, it's a very ethnically diverse society. Uh, I'm going to, in very simplistic terms, describe it as follows, that about 15 years ago, or maybe 10 years ago, 15 years ago, there was a sense, both within the United States and within Myanmar, that maybe, that Myanmar didn't want to be a full-on vassal state of mainland China. They share a border with mainland China, and it was clear that even though it had a mili- the, the Myanmar had a military regime, that the Chinese Communist Party was perhaps taking advantage of the fact that Myanmar had nowhere else to turn. And so there were a series of problems, including a specific dam that was built that created a whole lot of headaches and problems in Myanmar. And there was a sense that the Chinese Communist Party was very disrespectful to the leadership in Myanmar. And it created an opening and an opportunity for the United States. And so through a variety of important steps and efforts, um, there was a new engagement with Myanmar. Myanmar held elections and had largely free and fair elections and began to kind of confront some of the kind of bottled up challenges that it had in its society. Unfortunately, even with all this effort, uh, there was a moment where Myanmar um, the Myanmar military decided that they that the, the democratic process was getting ahead of them, if I can put it that way, and they decided to clamp down again. And so unfortunately, there's been a series of terrible, violent acts um, after a recent election in, uh, in the last 24 months. And so as a result, they've sort of clamped down again and return, kind of ter- returned back to China. We'll have to see how long that lasts, but I would just say that, the opening to Myanmar was really important because this was an. It was clear that Myanmar does not want to be 100% dependent on mainland China, and it was clear that you know that you know there were many forces within Myanmar that didn't want to be under the thumb of a military regime, and but that Myanmar was going to have to figure out a way that its ethnically diverse society, where varieties of peoples could live in Myanmar in a way that you know everyone felt respected and safe.
1: People talk often broadly about something called the liberal international order, uh, and I would say that that's, you know, something that, that you give a lot of attention to, but uh, can you talk about what the liberal international order is uh, and, uh, you know, what you sort of see as its future, especially, you know, in the wake of, I mean, you know, recording this uh, just a day after protests in Brazil uh, after a democratic election, so you know, broadly speaking, you know, what do you see as the, as what's happened in the liberal international order, what constitutes it? And, uh, you know, how do you, how do you think its growth and stature should be maintained?
0: So um, I described earlier, there was this international system set up after World War II, we set up the United Nations system to try and deal with interstate conflicts. We set up NATO to provide uh, a a system of security guarantees for a number of countries. It's now about, it's north of 30 countries or so in NATO. We, I think it's about 30, don't hold me to it. We then um, set up the World Bank to deal with trying to deal with reconstruction of Europe, but also dealt with poverty issues in the rest of the world. We also set up um, the International Monetary Fund to deal with big macro financial crises and we dealt with we set up the general agreement of tariffs and trade later the world Trade Organization, to try and deal with issues of trade which had been a big cause of the great depression in the 30s so all of that stuff i've just described as well as i think a series of assumptions one of the assumptions was the world big countries would do their best to try and work out their differences through diplomacy and negotiation not annexing countries and that the law of the jungle wouldn't wouldn't operate and that required a little bit of the united states as a guarantor as a security and economic guarantor for this thing to work and also for somebody to pay for like i described the condo fees of global leadership someone's gonna have to take on like an additional burden as the leader to make this system go whether it's a security burden a financial burden a diplomatic burden and even sometimes a trade burden so um i would argue that the you know the liberal international are still largely functions and it still largely exists and so one of the reasons you've had such a strong negative reaction to russia's illegal invasion of ukraine is that there's been a sense that this was a terrible violation of a uh, of a set of assumptions and agreements, especially in a place like Europe, which had seen World War II happen. And so I think it's been particularly, and it was an assumption that if you were a developed country, you would, you would follow by developed country rules. Maybe that would be a way to describe it. So the liberal international order is a little bit of an amorphous, fuzzy topic, <coughs> but I would describe it as the series of institutions and a series of assumptions and rules supported by american security guarantees and america and also but but also the united states looking to partners to burden share so one of the things that i'm interested in is seeing countries develop and become rich enough that they can help us burden share with the existing system and one of the things that was thought about over the last 40 years was the hope that if china became wealthy it would become what was described as a responsible stakeholder in the existing system, the existing liberal international order. What's happened, though, as China's become wealthier and more powerful is they've not been really willing to operate as a responsible stakeholder in the liberal international order. Rather, they've wanted to either revisit, revise the liberal international order, or put forward an alternate system, or at least they've been tempted to try and create one. I think that they don't have enough resources on their own to ultimately succeed. And I think that if countries have a choice between working with the United States and the West and China, we have to enable an alternative. If we're not there, they'll go off with China. But if we're there, more often than not, I think over time, they'll go with us. They don't know, I don't know any, I've been to 100 countries, I've been to a country yet that says, "Gosh, I really would like to be a full-on vassal state of the Chinese Communist Party." I haven't seen met anybody that's like, "Oh, sign me up for that."
1: In your book, uh, in your discussion of China, you you talk about the rapid growth that China has seen in the last thirty years. Uh, you talk about the you know the economic development that has occurred yeah. in, in special economic zones there, uh, and trade with the U.S. and China, uh, and you know, I suppose I'm wondering. You know, to what extent has China's current position or growth uh, been because of internal policies uh, in China, or just due to to trade with the U.S. Uh, and with other countries? And you know, can China uh, live without us? I suppose, uh, or are they? Do we have a you know maybe a better uh, hand to play uh, with them? You know, and potentially creating a better order than the one that we had with the relationship that we have with the Soviet Union during the cold war.
0: So I would very much like us not to get into a shooting war with mainland China. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if we're in a second cold war, though. I worry that if it kind of walks like a cold war and quacks like a cold war, maybe we're coming, we're kind of approaching something like it. I would say we're certainly in a, not a very warm moment. I think I, my sense is that after COVID, I spent a year in my basement. I don't, I'm don't. i sure you did too. Um, I, I'm kind of unhappy with them. And I don't think I'm the only person that's sort of unhappy with them. And I think there's a sense that there's maybe some, you know, I don't think there's been a full reckoning of what the heck happened with COVID. But many people sense that there may be some culpability uh, with our friends in the Chinese Communist Party on a lot for on a, for a number of different reasons. <clears throat> but My takeaway was, I think the way I think about it is we ought to go from an economic relationship with China that's in fifth gear to more like third gear or second gear is how I think about it. Or maybe it's like if you had an amicable divorce and I brought my new spouse and China brought their new spouse to Thanksgiving and we could have a blended family holiday photo for the card and maybe we could even sit together and watch our kid graduate from high school. Like, I think that's sort of what we ought to be aiming for. I just think if you threaten to cut off my pills and my ventilators like they did, those are grounds for divorce. So I'd like us to have a a different kind of a relationship with mainland China. And I think many people, I think what I think you can say is both with the Trump administration and the Biden administration, there is now a consensus in Washington that we need to have a, we need to downshift our relationship with mainland China. We shouldn't be zero. And at the same time, though, I don't think yet about what, how do we push back against mainland China? And so one of the reasons I wrote this book was to try and spur a conversation about the kinds of things we can be doing in this comp, if we're gonna be competing with them and we are, and if it ain't about night vision goggles and missiles, it's about all this other stuff. It's about the multilateral system. It's about vaccines. It's about whose telecom technology are we using. It's about who responds to people's humanitarian emergencies better. Who's helping enable some kind of alternatives in terms of infrastructure, whether it's ports or airports or other stuff. So if you believe that, then we then we have to get a consensus about the kinds of things, how we're going to push back. And I don't think we're there yet in Washington. Now, at the same time, when I say to people who are pretty isolationist, are you good with having mainland China run the world and run the system? They say, oh, no, I don't want that. So even the most kind of let's all say uh, <clears throat> internationalist skeptics, if I say, "Well, do you want China running the world?" They say, "No, I don't want that." So if that's the case, then what I use the book for, the American imperative, is to to try and begin to have a conversation nationally about, "Well, how are we going to respond to this, and what what are we going to offer the world?" Because I think we ought to go back to the drawing board on all the things we were talking about earlier about some of the, the, the kinds of things that we do hasn't really been updated since the Cold War. And I would argue, if we're in this new era, whatever you want to call it, a second Cold War, or a, I don't know, a mini ice, mini, mini something, whatever you want to call it, uh, a mini frosty moment with, with, with mainland China and Russia and I think we got to go back to the drawing board and rethink how we approach these things.
1: So yeah, on that point, what types of aid do you think that we should invest in and also, you know, to what extent should there be strings attached to the aid that we offer to the uh, you know, the the developing countries, not China, not Russia, uh, but the other countries that like like you said at the beginning that uh where will be where this Uh, if there is some sort of competition. And obviously there already is a little bit of competition, but there is some competition between China and America.
0: So I just would start with vaccines. They stole a march on us. They were exporting really crappy vaccines, but we were, if you have an option in a developing country between a crappy COVID vaccine and no vaccine, guess what? You're taking the crappy Russian or the crappy mainland Chinese vaccine. And you know what the mainland chinese were using that as a weapon it's called vaccine diplomacy so they were going to countries in central america saying well if you recognize us mainland china instead of taiwan we'll give you vaccines and so and then these countries that are recognizing taiwan called us and said hey can you get us some vaccines Said, hey take a number we'll get to you in six months well guess what you know that's not an answer so Sometimes it's about being a little bit more responsive and answering the mail because they can do this now. This isn't 20 years ago, where we kind of kind of they get to kind of wait for us expectantly until we tell them what, you know, we, we're gonna have to kind of be a little bit more dynamic, I think, in how we engage. Second, let's just use the digital stuff. Right now, you know, Huawei, ZTE, and Alipay as a group have a cost competitive quality solution so i spent a week a year in my basement you spent a year in your basement guess what everybody spent a year in their basement all over the world high speed internet is now the new electricity and whether you're in rural maryland you're in moldova you're in mali or malaysia you're going to close the what's called the digital divide you're going to get high speed internet and so guess what the the best offer unfortunately on hand right now, is a Chinese offer. We are not going to want the digital rails of the future of developing countries controlled by the Chinese Communist Party. We're not going to want it. They're going to collect all sorts of data. This gets a big uh, spy bonanza for them, and it has all sorts of economic opportunities for them. What we want is to enable a consortium of Western companies and technologies over time to be technology and price and quality competitive with that. I don't know exactly what that looks like but i can tell you we need to do that so that's the second thing the third thing is china has become much better about long-term education and training we educated two generations of economists and public health professionals and doctors and urban planners a lot of it with american foreign aid you know the long the education landscape has changed the world's a wealthier place there's a lot more agency But there's still a role for us to use some of our monies for long-term training and education. There are, mainland China is sending tens of thousands if not hundreds of thousands of people in the developing world who are the elites, who are gonna be the future prime ministers and the future econ ministers and the future central bank presidents and the future CEOs of countries like Indonesia or Kazakhstan or Angola or Tanzania or Guatemala All these folks are going to be going to mainland China. We're not going to like it because what happens is if you go one or two years of schooling in Beijing, guess what? Your friends on your speed dial are from Beijing, not from Iowa or Boston. What you want is we want people in the developing world to have Boston on their speed dial, not Beijing on their speed dial. So that means we have to think differently about our long-term training and education in terms of infrastructure. Well, we don't necessarily have to compete dollar for dollar with the Chinese Communist Party, but we need to enable an alternative. And there's some stuff, if they wanna build a farm to market road in the middle of the Congo, we probably don't need to compete, but if they wanna build some dual use airport that can also house co- their combat jets or a dual use port, we probably need to pay a little bit more attention to that and figure out ways in which we can leverage the African Development Bank, the World Bank, private pools of capital, what are organizations, institutions that are called development finance institutions. We have to be more strategic about how we use our foreign aid because we ought to enable an alternative. We do not want to have 50 ports in Africa controlled by the Chinese Communist Party. We're not going to want all the O and O. And by the way, with the carbon transition coming, decarbonization doesn't mean dematerialization. We're going to have to mine multiples of whatever we're mining right now. And we're not gonna wanna change our dependence on Saudi Arabia, Venezuela, and Iran for mainland China with with minerals and critical minerals and the processing of minerals. That's what's happening right now. So we're gonna have to think differently about mining and minerals in a different and strategic way. And we're gonna have to use our soft power to think about that as well. So those are just some examples.
1: Obviously, in America, there has been you know a massive uh, movement, uh, you know, sort of a a movement away from from foreign aid and saying that we shouldn't, you know, on both the left and the right, that we shouldn't have any foreign entanglements, that we should focus on our problems at home. Uh, but you know, you, you seem to really be making, you know, the 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 opposite claim that we really need to, in this time, more than ever, pay attention to the international environment. So I'm wondering you know, in addressing these concerns, you know, if there's anything that you would sort of say to people that think, no, we need to stop, you know, focusing on adventures abroad, or aid abroad, we need to buckle down and focus on problems at home. Why is it so crucial that America also pays attention to uh, what's what's going on abroad, not just what's going on at
0: home? So I would just say two or three things. The first is that COVID, uh, we couldn't build a wall to protect ourselves from COVID. But a lot of the time, the way that a lot of technical experts talk about this stuff, they start talking about health system strengthening. And a lot of people in Washington, eyes just glows over. But if you say, do you want to sit in your basement for a year because of COVID? They'll say, no, I don't want that. So that's a different, you know, we need to talk about these things in an excess. We, we need to be, a, you know, we need to frame these these issues in a, in an accessible way without being stupid. And I think oftentimes there's an affectation, especially among technical experts to speak in technocratic gobbledygook that nobody understands. So I think that's a problem. The second thing I would say is, do you really wanna have a world that's led by China where religious freedom is curtailed? um, There's all sorts of higher levels of pollution. There's higher levels of acceptance of corruption, authoritarianism, especially digital authoritarianism, sort of the norm. Are you really going to want that? And I think the answer is no, you're not for you or your kids. So if you don't want that, then we're going to have to push back in a number of different ways. And as I said, it's not just night vision, goggles, and missiles. It's got to be a series of non-military responses. And so my book, The American Imperative, talks about some of the non-military responses that I think we need to carry out. I don't think they're all of them. And I'd welcome, as I said, to have a dialogue with the, with the American people and with with uh, decision makers in Washington, based on what I've put out in the book.
1: So yeah, I'm wondering since you know you've you've put forward some of these ideas, uh, and obviously you know we can't we exist you know we live in just such a, a fast paced environment. So many things are constantly changing. You know, I'm wondering if there's anything that you have seen recently in the news. You know, either the uh, this race of the Speaker of the House, the recent protests in Brazil. Um, or, or, or other things uh, that, you know, going on may, maybe in Ukraine, other things that uh, you think are illustrative, uh, particularly illustrative of some of the things that you advocate for
0: uh, in the book. So I do think I'm hopeful because of what's happened in Ukraine. I think the illegal and Russia's invasion of Ukraine is illegal. I think what they're doing is outrageous. I've been heartened by the unified response in the West. I've been heartened by the largely unified support in both the Republican and Democratic parties in Washington provide both military aid and economic assistance. Yes, there's been some there's been a small a percentage about 20% of the House Republicans and 20% of the Senate Republicans haven't supported aid. But that means 80% of the Republicans have supported aid. So I remain guardedly optimistic and I think Americans like a winner. And I think the Ukrainians, they also like the underdog. And this is a pretty good, you know, white hat and black hat story. And the Ukrainians are wearing the white hats here. So I think um, I think ultimately, though, what we want for Ukraine is for them to win the war. But then what we want to think about is what does victory look like? Victory looks like a Ukraine with the GMP per capita of Poland. It's one fourth the GNP per capita of Poland. With the ag productivity of Canada, it doesn't have the ag productivity of Canada, but it could. The manufacturing heft and capacities of Germany, it's got great technical abilities in manufacturing and should have the kind of manufacturing power of Germany. The tech sector of Estonia, it's got amazing ICT sector. And it should have the defense capacities of Israel. So no one ever messes with it ever again. It should be fully a member of the European Union, perhaps or likely a full-on member of NATO, and fully embedded in the Euro-Atlantic community. That's what victory looks like. All of those things I've just described to you after winning the war are things that have nothing to do with the military. Some of it has to do with the military, but most of it isn't military. It's other things. And so I think there's an understanding and an appreciation of that. So that's been that's been mildly heartening, if you will, in, in spite of the fact it's a terrible situation. And it's very, you know, obviously very distressing. And one of the worst things that's happened in a long time.
1: Another thing that I'm, I'm curious about is, you know, a lot of the, you know, what you advocate for is, is strengthening, uh, you know, non-military government action. Uh, and I'm wondering, you know, for those who argue that this, you know, that it's this approach might be too centralized it might it might not work in the same way that you know our attempts at uh and you know i might be getting some of the details wrong but some of our attempts at you know economic development in afghanistan and other places uh didn't didn't work properly uh you know do you think that we might you know the way that we might need to go about development for you know ukraine in, in a post-war scenario um you know do you think it's op- it's okay or necessary that the government is highly involved, or should we create as many, you know, as many um, incentives as possible to have there be economic development as opposed to just government intervention? Yeah.
0: There's there's not enough foreign aid to rebuild Ukraine. We're going to need to have an enormous amount of private investment to rebuild Ukraine. And the, the picture I painted for you earlier, assumes an enormous amount of private investment and Obviously, we hope we should hope there ought to be a naughty list and a nice list. So countries that voted the right way for Ukraine and the United Nations ought to be remembered for that. And those countries that voted the wrong way in the United Nations ought to be on the naughty list when the time comes.
1: Wonderful. Uh, well, Daniel, thank you so much for being a guest on the New Books Network. Uh, the book is The American Imperative, Reclaiming Global Leadership Through Soft Power. Uh, thank you so much.
0: Thanks, Caleb. I really appreciated it. Of course.